You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And we're going to read verses 5 through 8 this morning as we begin from Philippians chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Pray together. Our Father, as we come to your word this morning, we confess before you two things. First of all, without the guidance and the direction of your spirit, there is no way we can understand your revealed truth in your word. And so our heart's desire is that the spirit of God would be our teacher this morning. And may the words that are said and may our time in this text be to the glory of Jesus Christ as you teach us from it. And second, Lord, we are reminded of the fact that we stand on on the edge of a mystery trying to understand things that are beyond human comprehension completely, that are a mystery to us. And so we pray for the grace to allow the mysteries to remain mysteries, to not plunge in where we cannot know and to explore things that are beyond us. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But some things which are revealed are for us, and we pray that you would show us what those things are this morning. We ask this in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, we have uh, been going kind of slowly the last two or three weeks, actually the last three weeks as we've been working our way through this chapter, but today, today we are going to cruise. We are going to fly through three entire phrases. Now for those of you who have been keeping track, and I know that some of you have been, that's three times as much as we've covered for the last three weeks, so it's going to feel like we're racing through the passage of Scripture, but we're going to be looking at the three phrases that Paul gives to us which which describe for us the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. The humanity. Now, as we've been going through this, we have mostly been focusing on His deity. And we have already looked at three phrases, and each one of those three phrases has presented to us an opportunity to remain orthodox or to fall into error. Each one of those three phrases has presented to us a very narrow beam that we have had to walk. And we've been doing so slowly and carefully because theologically speaking, we have to walk a very narrow beam and it's above a very deep, dark chasm. And if we make a misstep or fall off interpretively speaking, we fall into the the chasm of error. We don't want to do that. So whenever you walk a beam, you do so thoughtfully, slowly, and carefully. Right? You don't tread lightly. You don't tread quickly. You don't tread thoughtlessly. So that's what we've been doing. We've been walking carefully, slowly, and thoughtfully through this passage because of the manifold blessing of the the revelation of who Jesus Christ is in this passage. Philippians chapter 2 is kind of like a kaleidoscope. With every turn of a phrase, we get a whole new vista of wonder and awe as to who Jesus Christ is. That's the way Philippians 2 is. Every time we look at a phrase, it just opens up to us this whole element of his person and who he is and what he has done and the humility of who Christ is. So that's why we're going a little bit slower. 
The three steps that we've taken so far, we began with Christ up as high as He could be, right? He existed in the form of God. Now with that first step, the form of God, we're presented with two options. To, uh, really an interpretive question. And the question was this. By He existed in the form of God, did Paul mean that He was merely a shadow or a representation of who God was, but not God Himself? Or did the Apostle Paul mean that He existed in the form of God, the outward expression of God, because that's who He was? And we saw that the term morphe, form of God, meant that He existed in that form because that's who He was by nature. He wasn't just a mere shadow or a sketch or a representation of who God is. He was God, and so He existed in the form of God. Then our next step, our next phrase, He did not regard His equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so the question for us in that phrase was, does Paul mean to say that he did not have equality with God, and he didn't want equality with God, and he didn't pursue equality with God, or did the Apostle Paul mean that he had equality with God and he did not consider that equality as something to be used for his own self-advancement, his own uh, seizing, so to speak, as a spoil or a, uh, a, a treasure to be held on to at all costs. And we saw that because he exists in the form of God, he was therefore equal with God, but that equality with God was not something that he grasped or clung to. Then the third step or the third phrase was that phrase, he emptied himself. And so our question with that phrase was, by he emptied himself, did the Apostle Paul mean that he emptied himself of all of his divine attributes and that he ceased to be God in order to become a man? Or did the Apostle Paul mean it figuratively that in emptying himself, he made his equality with God of no effect by taking upon himself the form of a servant? Now you see, with each one of those options, you have the choice. You can either make Jesus Christ out to be God, who He is, or you can arrive at a Jesus that is less than who Jesus was. So we've been, kind of been walking slowly all the way through that. Up till now, our emphasis has been on the deity, the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now today, we're going to be looking at the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now you ask me, is He God? Yes, He is. But now you're telling me that He's a man. Yes, He is. Are those two things contradictory? How can He be both? How can He be a man, and how can He be God at the same time? Well, in these three phrases, the Apostle Paul gives us three phrases which demonstrate or describe the humanity of the Lord Jesus. You're going to see that in a second. So as Christians, the Orthodox Christian perspective is that we affirm 100% His humanity, and we affirm 100% His deity. I was talking with somebody who claimed to be a Christian one time, and I was uh, using the, the antimony between the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus as an illustration of how we can hold two things that seem to be contradictory but are not at the same time. And he said, well, I don't believe that Jesus was necessarily 100% man, and I don't believe that Jesus was necessarily 100% God. And I said to him, you are on dangerous ground, very dangerous ground. We can affirm that Jesus Christ is 100% God, and that he is 100% man. Now you say, how do those two go together? Well, listen, you hold to this, if you're orthodox in your faith, you hold to this type of apparent dilemma all the time. In all the major doctrines of Scripture, we have this dilemma. Let me give you a few of them. What is the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man? We believe that God is absolutely sovereign in all things, and that man is absolutely responsible for all of his sin because he makes real, substantial, moral choices. 
And so man is 100% responsible for his sin, for his wickedness, for his rejection of the light, and for his rejection of Christ. And God is 100% sovereign. We don't say, well, God's 50% sovereign and man's 50% responsible. Baloney! How can you be 50% sovereign over anything? That's ludicrous. Nor do we say that God is 90% sovereign but and man is 10% responsible. Or man is 90% responsible and God is 10% sovereign. It doesn't work out that way. We say that God is absolutely sovereign because Scripture teaches that. And man is absolutely responsible for the choices that he makes because Scripture teaches that. Let me ask you another question. This Bible that you have in your laps, is that the words of men? Yes, it is. Who do you think wrote that? Men wrote that. Paul wrote that. Peter, John, James, Daniel. They wrote that. But it's also 100% what? The Word of God. Now, is this 50% the words of men and 50% the words of God? It's 100% the, the writings of men, is it not? It is also 100% the product of divine inspiration so that it is in every jot and every tittle and every way the Word of God. Who's responsible for your sanctification, your growth in holiness? You or God? Well, you're going to see a little later on in Philippians it says you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But it's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So who is it? Is it 50% you and 50% God? It's 100% you. And it's 100% God. And if you're Orthodox, you hold to that, that dilemma, that antimony in every major doctrine of Scripture. It is the same thing with the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. He is 100% God and He is 100% man. Without conflict, without contradiction, without any sort of mingling of natures, He is in Jesus Christ all God and all man. So we've looked at the fact that He is all God, His deity, the last three weeks. Today we're going to look at the humanity of Jesus. And let me tell you something. Anytime you begin to subtract from the humanity of Jesus to emphasize His deity, you make an error. And anytime you begin to minimize His deity in order to emphasize His humanity, you make an error. So in Scripture, what we have is we have this man who acts like God and this God who looks like a man and was a man. And so they're both true. And if you begin to say, well, I think that He was 50% God and 50% man, you're in heresy. And if you say, I think he was 90% God and 10% man, that's heresy. 90% man, 10% God, that's heresy. What is the only Christian Orthodox view of the person of Jesus Christ? That he is 100% God and that he is at the same time 100% man. So, Philippians chapter 2. Let's look at these three phrases. There are three of them that Paul gives to us. The end of verse 6. Well, verse 6 says, He existed in the form of God. He did not regard his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. How did he empty himself? How did he pour himself out? Or what did he, how did he make his equality with God of no effect? The next three phrases tell us what that emptying entailed. First of all, verse 7, he took the form of a bondservant. Second, he was made in the likeness of men. And third, he was found in appearance as a man. He took the form of a bondservant. He was made in the likeness of men and he was found in appearance as a man. So just as from every conceivable angle and every possible way the Apostle Paul has affirmed the deity of Jesus Christ, he is now taking three phrases and he is coming at it in every possible way, in every conceivable way to affirm the humanity of Jesus. Because he doesn't want us to fall into either error. So he affirms both. He came in the form of a bondservant, in the likeness of man, 
and he was in appearance as a man. Three different phrases. So let's take a look at each one of them in turn. First of all, he was made, or took the form of a bondservant. The form of a bondservant. Now the word form there is one that you're familiar with. You know why? We already looked at that in verse 6, didn't we? He took the morphe of, existed in the morphe of God. Here Paul uses the same word. He took upon himself the morphe, that is the form of a bondservant. Now what does Paul mean by form of a bondservant? Do you remember from our time when we looked at it? I'm not going to belabor this again and go through all the illustrations. I'm just going to quickly review it for you. There are four words that Paul could have used for form of a servant. He could have used idos, which remember just meant a, a general shape like the shape of a dog in the clouds. He could have used icon, which meant a reference to something that was sketched or molded like a statue. Or he could have used the word uh, skia, which meant a shadow or an outline of something. But instead, he uses the one word in the whole Greek language that basically meant the outward manifestation of what was an inward reality. So just as he was God, and so he existed in the form of God, so he came in the form of a bondservant or took upon himself the form of a bondservant. In other words, he was not just play-acting. He didn't just come down and put on a servant's robes and pretend to serve people. He didn't just come down and pretend to be humanity. He didn't just come down here and pretend to be nothing. He literally, really was made nothing. That's the reality of it. It wasn't a show. It wasn't a demonstration. Jesus didn't come down out of heaven and say, all right, well, I'll pretend to be a servant for a little while. I'll, I'll sort of pass myself off as one amongst them. No, in every conceivable way, He took the form. That is the outward manifestation. He become, came in His nature or took the nature of a bond servant. That's what he was, a bond servant, a doulos. You're familiar with that word because Paul uses it to describe himself and his relationship to Christ. A lot of times in Scripture. You know, what, you know what's significant about a doulos? A doulos had no possessions. A doulos had no possessions. A bond servant owned nothing. Even the clothes on their back was owned by their master. They didn't build equity. They didn't have investments. They didn't have a savings account. They didn't acquire material possessions. They had no place to live, no place to lay their head. They owned nothing because they were at the total disposal of the one who was their master. That's the word that Paul uses, a doulos. And the same thing is true of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? You know his, you know his poverty, that though he was rich, or you know his grace, that though he was rich, he became poor. Why? So that you through his poverty might be made rich. Now Jesus owned a robe, did he not? He owned sandals, he owned a stick. He could have acquired possessions because he wasn't a slave in the earthly sense of a doulos. But, in terms of heaven, in terms of what he possessed before he came here, did he really own anything? Did he really have anything? When he left heaven, what did he leave? He left his throne. He left the praise and adoration of angels. He left all of the splendor, all of the wealth, all of the glory, all of the comforts, the conveniences, the blessings, the joy, the bliss, the freedom of heaven. And he came here. So when he came here, what did he own? He had no place to lay his head. He lived off of other people's gifts. He was an itinerant preacher. He was born into one of the poorest families. Do you know that God could have chosen a virgin who lived in a palace or a mansion or was an heir to a great estate? He didn't do that, did he? He picked a virgin who was what? Engaged to a Jewish carpenter. It's basically nobody. She was nobody. Who would have thought that this would be the vehicle through which the Messiah would come? And God could have chosen a virgin who lived in a palace or was an heir to an estate, or was due to inherit a, a huge blessing, or was engaged to be married to a very wealthy man. He could have done that. 
but he didn't. Instead, he chose to come into the world, into a poor family, into the most meager and humble of surroundings, and to live in obscurity and poverty for 30 years of his life until he finally sort of stepped onto the scene, publicly speaking. He had nothing. Second significant thing about a doulos, not only did they have no possessions, but they didn't have any rights. They had no rights. A doulos could never say, excuse me, my human rights have been violated. Somebody somebody violated my human rights. I am because I am created in the image of God. I have certain inalienable rights, and you have not seen to my rights. A, a doulos could never say that. They had legally, legally no rights whatsoever. So here you have the Lord Jesus Christ becoming a doulos, and what Paul is saying and what that means is that he who he who was the only being in all of the universe who had the right to assert his rights waived his rights. He had the right to be obeyed, the right to be adored, the right to be worshipped, the right to have everything provided for him, and he waived all of those rights. He had the right to exercise all of the attributes of deity that were at his disposal, but he waived those rights. He could have asserted them, but he didn't assert them. Why? Because he came in the form of a bondservant. Now, who was he a slave to? Was he a slave to you and I? Was he a slave to Satan? Remember we looked at that last week? didn't take the form of a bondservant and become a slave to demonic hosts or demons or Satan. That's not what Paul means. Who was he a slave to? The Father. He came to do the will of Him who sent Him. He came and He submitted His will and His interest to those of the Father, and He came to perfectly serve us in obedience to the Father and to the Father's will. And so he willingly gave up all of his rights and all of his possessions and waived all of that so that he could take upon himself the nature, the form of a servant. Now does that mean that the nature of Jesus Christ changed? He who existed in the form of God, in taking the form of a servant, did his nature change? Did he suddenly become something less than God? Did he do that? Did his nature change? Did it alter? You know, it didn't. Not at all. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord changes not. He did not change. His nature did not change one iota. What did change was that He took upon Himself a human nature. And His divine nature didn't forfeit anything. His divine nature didn't lose anything. It didn't become less than what it was before. But He emptied Himself by taking on Himself something, and that was His humanity. So the first phrase, he took the form of a bondservant. Second, he came in the likeness of men, or became in the likeness of men. My translation, I think, says, was made in the likeness of men. The word is ginomai. It means a beginning or a time when you come into a state of being. There was a time when the word became flesh. He wasn't always man, was he? He wasn't always man. And listen, do you realize, this is on his side, do you realize that he will ever, ever more be the God-man? When you see Jesus in heaven, guess what? He's going to have a risen, glorified body. God is forever united with humanity, with us. This is quite of condescension, isn't it? It's not that He took upon Himself humanity and then ceased being the God-man and became just God again in spirit form. That's not it at all. He ceased existing only in the form of God, and He took upon Himself the form of a slave, and now He is forever united with humanity. The second person of the Trinity is. So now He was made. There was a point where He was made something that He was not before, and that is the God-man. When did that happen? That happened when the Spirit of God came upon Mary and the power of the Most High overshadowed her, and she conceived in her womb the Son of God. 
That's when that happened. Galatians 4, verse 4. When it pleased God to send forth His Son, in the fullness of the times He sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, born, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who are under the law. So there was a time when that happened. He was made, or He came, or He became in the likeness of men. Interesting word, that word likeness. It's one that theologians have spilt a lot of ink over for the last 2,000 years. And I'm not going to spend a tremendous, spill a tremendous amount of ink over it this morning. I'm just going to tell you what it means. The word likeness was a word that referred to something that was made like an original. But when you spoke of likeness in this sense, you spoke of the likeness that something was made, but you kept it distinct from the original. In other words, there is something in the likeness that makes it distinct from what it was made after or made to be like. And when you made something in the likeness of something else, you made it not just in appearance, but in reality, what it was that you were making it after, but it was distinct from what you made it after. Let me illustrate this. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 says that God sent forth His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin in the flesh. The same word Paul used. What he, what, did, when Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, was He sinful flesh? Not at all. No sin in Him. Did no sin, knew no sin, had no sin, committed no sin. Sin did not touch Him or pollute Him whatsoever. So when He was made in the likeness of flesh, He was made just like us in every way, but there's a distinction. And what is the distinction? He was not sinful flesh. The Word became flesh, but the Word did not become sinful flesh. So He was made in the likeness of men. Now in the first phrase, taking the form of a servant, the Apostle Paul is describing his status among us. He was a servant. Didn't come as a king, not a prince, not a governor, not the head of a business, not a big corporation, not an heir to the throne, not an heir to a big manufacturing conglomerate, nothing. He just came and his status was among us a servant. He was just came as a bond servant. That's his status. The second phrase refers to his, his being. What was he in reality? He was man. He was made in the likeness of men. He was just like us. He had a body. He had bones. He had ligaments and tendons, a stomach and bowels. He had a brain. He had an esophagus. He was not just in appearance like us, but he actually had a physical body. He was made just like us physically. But there's one distinction. And what is it? No sin. No sin. That's what sets him apart from you and I. No sin. Sin did not dwell in him. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but not as sinful flesh. The third phrase, he was took the form of a bondservant, he was made in the likeness of men. Third phrase, being found, that is to say, being recognized or observed by people, being found in appearance as a man. Now by that, the Apostle Paul does not mean that he simply looked like man only in appearance, just to the eyes. There was a group of people, heretics, in the first century called Docetics, and some of them became Gnostics, so you had Docetic Gnosticism. But the Docetics believed, because, and Docetic, by the way, comes from a Greek word, dakeo, which means to seem or to appear. And they held and they believed that Jesus only appeared to be human. He only appeared to have a body. And that if you were walking along the beach with Him and He were walking in the sand there, it would appear from all appearances that there was a body there, but He wouldn't leave any footprints because He didn't really have a body. It's just the a vision of it. And so they also believed that the crucifixion of Christ was an illusion because you can't crucify something that doesn't have a body, can you? So the crucifixion was an illusion and everything physical that he did was only an illusion. It just appeared to be that way. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. 
He is saying that if you were to look at Jesus from the outward perspective, from everything that your eyes would see, from everything that your ears would hear, from everything that you would, if you were to touch Him and handle Him, He would appear to you as a mere man. Just as a man. If you were to walk up and pat Him on the back and talk with Him, He would appear to you, from appearance's sake, a mere man. So Paul is in every conceivable way, from every angle, saying He became a man. He took upon Himself the nature of a slave. And He came and He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, just like us physically. And being in appearance, from outward appearances, He would be what? A man. There's nothing outwardly about Him that would say that would suggest to you that He was anything more than an ordinary man. So is He 100% God? He is 100% God. And He is also what? 100% man. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, He was in every way just like us with one distinction. He was not fallen and He was not sinful. He was, Friends, He wasn't just a man. He was more than you and I are. Why? He was unfallen humanity. He was more than a man. He was man in its fullest expression. You and I are marred images of what manhood and womanhood are. You and I are marred images of what humanity is and should be. He was perfect humanity. In every way, 100% God, 100% man. Now, a couple weeks ago I told you, and last week I repeated it. And here it is. Anything that can be said of God can be affirmed of Jesus Christ. Do you remember me saying that? Anything that can be affirmed of God can be affirmed of Jesus Christ. Is He omniscient? Yes. Omnipotent? Yes. Omnipresent? Yes. All-wise, all-knowing, all-loving, kind, all of those attributes. Anything that we can say of God, we can also affirm of Jesus Christ. Conversely, this is also true. Anything that we can affirm of unfallen humanity can also be affirmed of Jesus Christ. Was He limited in knowledge? Yes. Subject to pain? Yes. Did He hunger? Yes. Thirst? Yes. So then you have in Jesus this apparent contradiction. You have Him on the one hand talking to the woman at the well and saying, look, I know your whole moral history. You've had five husbands. The one you're living with now is not your own. And she was awed at that. And she said, here's a man who knows everything about me. This is an omniscient being. And then at the same time, he's walking through the crowd and somebody bumps into him and touches him. And what does he say? Who touched me? And the disciples say, Lord, you're in the middle of a crowd. People are crowding in around you, trying to touch you. Everybody's touched you. What do you mean who touched me? And that episode in the life of the Lord Jesus is a perfect example of how he had omniscience, or sorry, omnipotence, got to get my omni right, he had omnipotence and limited knowledge at the same time. He knew that power had gone out from him. He was aware of that. He didn't know who had touched him. And so at the same time, he says, I don't know the day or the hour of my return. That's not given to me to know. You said, I thought you said he was omniscient. That's right. But he had limited knowledge. That's right. Yeah, just answered that for you, didn't I? It's, it's both true. Sometimes in Jesus you see these divine attributes manifesting themselves and you get a glimpse at them. And then other times we see those divine attributes veiled and hidden from our sight. Why? Because it's veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He is both the all-wise wisdom of God, and at the same time, Luke says, He grew in what? Wisdom. 
and stature with both God and man. Well, is, is he the all-wise God? Yes, he is. And he grew in wisdom. How does that work out? I don't know. That's the mystery. I don't know how all that comes together, but it does. And just because I don't understand it doesn't mean that I'm going to deny one or doctrine or the other. We have to affirm both of them. Let me give you an illustration that might sort of help you wrap your brain around this at least as much as I can stretch your brain around something. Sometimes the only thing I can stretch my brain around is a pencil. Let me give you an illustration. Have you ever heard of the name Asafa Powell? Know the name Asafa Powell? Anybody heard that name? Anybody? No? Asafa Powell. He's a Jamaican sprinter, considered the world's fastest man. He can run the 100-meter dash in 9.77 seconds. That's 10 meters every second. It's more than 30 feet every second. I can't even glance 30 feet in a second. He can run 30 feet in the world's fastest man, Asafa Powell. Now, if we take Asafa Powell and we enter Asafa Powell into a three-legged race with me as his partner, is he going to run 100 meters in 9.77 seconds? He's not going to do that, is he? Why not? He has a huge handicap. And what is that handicap? It's me. I'm the handicap. Now, if you put us together and you strapped our legs together and we grabbed onto each other's shoulders and the, the gun went off and we started to run down the 100 meters, it would take us not 9.77 seconds, not 15 seconds, probably 15 minutes, and everybody's standing around looking, watching Asafa Powell and I run together that 100 meters in the three-legged race, would never be able to guess that he was the world's fastest man. But in, in binding himself to me and strapping himself to my leg and entering into the race with me, did he forfeit any of his abilities? None whatsoever. Did he all of a sudden become not the world's fastest man? No. Did his nature change or his abilities change? No. But what he did do was take upon himself a handicap, that's me, which limited the expression of his attributes, the expression of his talent, and the full manifestation of his abilities. And that is a, a little glimpse at what the incarnation did. He who existed in the form of God did not forfeit any of His divine attributes. But He brought them in and he, they limited them in taking upon Himself the form of a servant. That is emptying in its fullest sense. So He didn't become less than God, but God took upon Himself humanity. So that in the person of Christ, we look at Him and every once in a while we get a glimpse at what He is really like in the Gospels. We see the omniscience, the omnipotence, the wisdom, and all of those divine attributes, but it's veiled in flesh. It's Him, the deity, taking upon Himself humanity and thus willingly limiting the expression of His attributes. So is He omniscient? Yeah. But at the same time, He didn't know the day or the hour of, of His return. Was He omnipresent? Present everywhere? Certainly He was, but at the same time, He was present in one location in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was he omnipotent? Yeah, but he didn't always manifest all of his power for all of us to see. He veiled it in flesh. So that from all outward appearances, we would have never guessed that this was God in human flesh. We would have never guessed that just looking at him. Did it ever strike you as curious that the God of all of the universe became a man, and then begin to think a little bit about what that entailed and what that meant as far as the experience of his, of his life goes? Do you know that the God of the universe traveled down a birth canal? 
and was born in all of the muck and all of the mire and the blood and all of that gook that attends a human birth. And he did that in a stable surrounded by filth and animals and the stench of all of that, born to a human family? Do you realize that the God of all of the universe had to learn to walk and learn to use a fork and learn not to touch hot things? And that he had to grow in wisdom? He had to learn the Proverbs and grow in wisdom? He had to. He probably memorized a lot of the Pentateuch like all of the other Jewish boys of the day did and all of the oral traditions and the things that went along with that. He had to learn how to act in social settings. He had to learn to eat. He had to learn to brush his teeth, brush his hair, comb his hair. I often wonder, did Mary ever have to make him eat his vegetables? And say to him, Jesus, you need to eat your broccoli. Well, Mother, I really don't care for broccoli. To which she could have said, then why did you create it? And while we're talking about that, let's discuss Brussels sprouts, son. You think I'm being blasphemous or, or, or snark about it? I'm not at all. I don't think it's blasphemous to affirm the full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That He was in all points tempted as we are. He, was every, he experienced everything that you and I experience. He had to go through the teenage years. Started growing hair on His back like most men do and hair on His chest and had to learn how to shave. Had to learn how to brush His teeth, comb His hair, had to get His hair cut. He knows what it means to trip and fall down and skin your knee and wrestle with little brothers and sisters, to wake up in the morning with bedhead and morning breath, which we do, and come downstairs and have your little brother or sister say, you need to go chew on some mint leaves or something because your breath could curdle the goat's milk. That is the full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe in all of this, you're thinking, oh, I had this idea of a Jesus who woke up every day with the olive skin and it was all pure, no zits, no imperfections in his complexion, with the long silky hair looking like he just stepped out of a salon, and that he just woke up every morning with that glow, and never had to brush his teeth, and his teeth were always perfectly white like a model, and he was always perfectly dressed, and never ever any dirt under his fingernails, never any scuffed knuckles from working in the shop or cuts, and never hit his thumb with a hammer, never did anything that might cause pain or suffering or any kind of affliction whatsoever. If that's your Jesus, then you have a wrong picture of what it means to be a man, and you have a wrong picture of who Jesus is and what He became for us. Now, minimizing His deity, the three weeks I've defended that. But friends, you and I have to have a realistic view of what it means to be human. He entered into all of the experiences that you and I experience. Hebrews chapter 2 says that since we partook of flesh and blood, He had to be made to partake of the same so that He could be made in all points, just like His brethren, to be a faithful high priest for us. All of the elements of humanity, all of those experiences, everything that you and I wrestle with, He wrestled with. He knows what sore muscles are like. He knows what it means to work all day in the shop and feel like you've accomplished nothing at the end of the day and to come inside with a headache. He knows what food poisoning is like, what it means to throw up your lunch because you got sick. He knows what it means to have a fever, to shiver at night as you're sitting around the fire trying to stay warm to sweat all day in that hot Middle Eastern sun. He knows what it means to have body odor and to sweat profusely. He knows what it means to bleed. He knows what it means to have a dry mouth and chapped lips and a bad hair day. What's your, what's your view of Jesus? How do you picture Him? If you were to step back into first century Jerusalem around the year 30, just a couple years before the crucifixion, I don't think you would have been able to pick Him out of a crowd. 
I don't think you would have been able to pick him out of a crowd. You would have walked into the temple, and there's no way you would have ever just walked along to a double take and say, well, that must be the Messiah over there. He's got the olive skin and the long flowing hair and the perfect white teeth, and he's wearing the Messiah robe, and he's kind of got that Messiah swagger to him, and he's being followed by 12 guys who are all arguing about who of them is the greatest. That must be him. You would never have done that. Isaiah says he had no stately form, no majesty, that we should be drawn to him. You would have bumped into him into the marketplace and said, excuse me, sir, I didn't mean to step on your toe. Pardon me. And he would have said, that's all right. And you would have went about your business. His brothers and sisters had no idea when they sat down that they were eating breakfast with the Son of God. They had no idea. There was nothing outward about him. He looked like a first century Jew. He walked like a first century Jew. He dressed like a first century Jew. He acted and lived and did everything just like a first century Jew. And if you'd lined him up with a hundred other people, you would have never picked him out as being special. In John chapter 10, after Jesus said, I and the Father are one, the Jews picked up stones to throw at him, to stone him. And he said, I've shown you many works from the Father. For which of those works are you stoning me? And you know what they said? It's not for any work that we're stoning you, but because you being a what? Man, make yourself out to be God. They understood exactly what he was claiming. And they also understood what? He was found in appearance as a man. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, in looking at him said, you are a mere man. And his brothers and sisters didn't sit down with him for breakfast and say, Lord, tell us about the day you created Adam and Eve. What was that first fruit that, that they ate that was has put us all in this wretched place that we're at? There was no outward indication from anybody and under any situation or circumstances that he was anything other than a man. Except, listen, when he spoke, they said, oh, he speaks as one with authority, not like the scribes, not like anybody. This guy teaches like nobody's business. Except when he calmed the waves. Then Peter fell down and said, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Then he understood. It was when Jesus spoke and what Jesus did and after the resurrection. Then they understood who he was and what he had done. But from all appearances, he was a mere man. Not just a, not just a mere man, a true man. He was true man, but he wasn't just a mere man. But from all appearances, he had full humanity. How do you view Jesus? How do you look at him? You know why this is significant for us? Here's the application for us, friends. If he was true man and if he experienced everything that we experienced, then it means that what Hebrews writes, what the author in Hebrews writes is true that he was tempted in all points as we are. There is absolutely no emotion, sinless emotion, that I have felt that he has not also felt. Did he feel abandoned? Yes, he did. Did he feel betrayed? Yes. Was he sad at times? Yeah, he weeped. Was he angry? He was angry, righteously angry, but angry nonetheless. Did he feel all of the emotions of humanity that's untainted by sin, all of that, all of the emotions. There's nothing that I can feel, unless it's sinful, there's nothing that I can feel that he has not also felt. Furthermore, there's no pain that I could ever undergo that he has not felt himself. Did he, did he know what it's like to hit his thumb with a hammer? I think he did. Did he know what it's like to be pushed down by the neighborhood bully? I think he did. Did he know what it was like to be cut in front of at the school lunch line down at the synagogue? I think he did. I think he knew all of the experiences and all of the expressions of humanity, all of the pains that you and I experience, the bad back, the dry eyes, the chapped lips, the dry mouth, the sore throat, the hurting stomach, the hunger pains. He knew thirst. All of that he knew. 
And on top of that, all of my temptations he also was tempted with. Was he tempted sexually? Yes, he was. Was he tempted with tempted in his integrity? Was he tempted to lie? Was he tempted to steal? Was he tempted to blaspheme? Was he tempted to look with lust? Was he tempted to covet something that was not his own? Was he tempted to be jealous? Was he tempted to be angry without cause? The author of Hebrews says he was tempted in all points just as we are. Name a temptation you have faced in all of the years of your life, and Jesus Christ has been there. So then I can have the utter and ultimate confidence that when I come to him, I find a sympathetic high priest. I have a sympathetic God because, listen, I can never in my mind vision a God that is distant from my pain, from my suffering, from my affliction, or from my experiences. Never. There is nothing that I have experienced that He has not partaken of, that He has not suffered through. There is no emotion, there is no temptation, there is no pain that He cannot sympathize with. Why? Because our God became a man. Never ceasing to be God, our God became a man. And He walked among us. And He knows exactly what it is like to walk in the filth and stench and the vile degradation of this filthy, rotten, sickening world. And not only that, but because He was pure and holy and sinless and righteous altogether, it was worse for Him than it is for us. Do you think it's bad at your place of work or in your family hanging around with all those pagans? It was worse for Him because He was holy. And He had to sit in that stench and look at the rebellion and the effects of the curse all around Him. He experienced everything that you and I experienced. Now, if it were just that our God had become a man and lived among us, that would be a humiliation. That would be a condescension that is almost beyond comprehension, is it not? That is a step down for the Creator to become a creature, to take upon Himself humanity and the limitations of humanity, and then to live amongst us. That is a step out of heaven down to a cesspool. But He has yet to go even lower than just merely becoming a man. There's one more step. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we've come down quite a bit, haven't we? From equality with God, not thinking of that as something to be held on to at all costs, but He humbled Himself, He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. But there's one more step, one more step down. And next Lord's Day, we're going to look at the humility of the death of the cross and what that meant for the Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for a Savior who has been tempted in all points as we are, who has lowered Himself to take upon Himself humanity and to become a man. We thank You for that great leap downward that He took and for what it means for us and for our salvation. We stand in awe of Him not being able to understand everything that that meant and not being able to understand everything that it means and even the implications of it or even how it's possible, but we affirm it. We thank You for that truth. We thank You that we worship a Savior who is the God-Man. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.